Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. You're listening to an encore edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Today, conversations recorded outside of our IPR studios while at the Tom and Ruth Harkin Center, an impressive and unique new building uh, completed in 2020. It's the headquarters of the Harkin Institute for Public Policy and Citizen Engagement at Drake University in Des Moines. That's where we are today, taking a tour of the center, the design of which embodies the values of the Institute. And it's a building in which, I guess the aim, as far as I can see, and it's written down somewhere, a building that is aims to be someplace where everyone can feel they belong and are at home. And we couldn't ask for better tour guides today. We'll meet the architect in just a moment. But first of all, yes, we do have on our program today, former Senator Tom Harkin. He served Iowans for 30 years in the U.S. Senate. And before that, 10 years in the U.S. House. He retired in 2015. And he's standing right next to me in the foyer, in the entrance uh, to the new Tom and Ruth Harkin Center. Thank you for this invite, uh, Senator Harkin, to be uh, with you and have you give us a bit of a tour of this new center. Well, Ben, welcome, and uh, Iowa Public Radio, it's, it's good to have you here and to uh, somehow portray to your listeners uh, what this building looks like and what it's about. It's unique. I'll just start by saying this. Maybe someone can prove me wrong, but until they can, I'm going to say it. This is the most accessible building in the United States for people with disabilities. I stand on that. I don't think there is a building that's designed from the ground up to be fully inclusive, to have universal design so that everyone is welcome. And the listeners that stay with us during this hour will find out the facets that make it so some of the details, some of the innovations. And when we talk with the architect, Kevin Nortmeyer, we'll learn about the process and reading about the process, Senator. I was fascinated that this wasn't just cooked up in some conference room. These are ideas from people who have disabilities creating this building, is that correct? That's exactly right. You can talk to Kevin Nortmeyer about that, but he reached out to the community. I said, when the board came to me and my wife Ruth and said they wanted to build this building because we were just in a storefront down the street that we had never envisioned a building but they said we need it because of the work was expanding I said well fine but it has to be a building that is state-of-the-art accessible for people with disabilities not just ADA compliant which was of course my bill the Americans with Disabilities Act but state-of-the-art and um they got an architect company and they found Kevin Nordmeyer and he took it from there and we will talk with him but he got all these different people who are sight impaired hearing impaired mobility impaired families with kids people are artistic cerebral palsy what do you need in a building there's an old saying in the disability community Ben nothing about us without us well if you're going to build a building that's going to be accessible you better call them in and ask them, yep. <laughs> what do they need? Yeah, And that's what you'll see in this building. Uh, our listeners on, on Iowa Public Radio, I think would love to learn uh, about the, uh, the principles, the guiding challenges facing the Harkin Institute, which has been around about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about how it ties in 
to the architecture of this building and how this building will be used. Does that sound like a good plan? Sounds like a good plan to me, Ben. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Remind but, us, what are the four sort of principles uh, that the Institute is founded on, is dedicated to? And these are ideas that you dedicated your career to in public service. Well, I think what you're getting at is sort of what are the areas of, of sort of our policy development? Mm-hmm. First, of course, is disability rights, uh, disability employment, anything affecting persons with disabilities in terms of uh, making our society more inclusive. So that's sort of our flagship, so to speak, at this institute. And we do things nationally and internationally. So we sort of have an international footprint in that regard also. We have summits in other countries. We just had one last year in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, we had something like 30-some countries and over five or 600 people attended. And this is all focused on employment people with disabilities. So we have that. And then uh, another area is uh, retirement security. Looking ahead with the kind of new workforce in America, the new kinds of jobs, new structures, how do we build up systems where people can save and, and some portion of their income be used for their retirement? So that's another big part of our institute here. The, the third is wellness and nutrition. I've chaired the health committee, the health committee in the Senate for some time. So I've always been interested in diets, wellness, nutrition, so we have that part. And every year we have a Harkin on Wellness Symposium here that's nationally attended. Uh, We tend to give awards to different entities around the United States, in Iowa and other places, that are kind of doing unique things in the whole area of uh, food, nutrition, wellness. And then the fourth area is labor and employment. What are the new jobs of the future? Uh, How are people going to, again, be able to to bargain collectively uh, if they're working from home all the time and uh, they don't go to an office or they don't go to a plant? Uh, How do you build up systems so that you have worker protections uh, in the future? So those are kind of the four basic. We do other things also. We have, for example, a, a, a large grant that came in, and we are in out of this building here, we're running the uh, Mid-Iowa uh, uh, Guaranteed Income Project. So there's 110 families in, I think, four counties here, Polk, Warren, Dallas, maybe another one. 110 families that meet certain income requirements in terms of the poverty line, that have dependents, and every month they get $500 for three years. No questions asked. They can spend it any way. It's sort of like basic guaranteed income. The University of Pennsylvania is doing the... Um, analysis and the data collecting, but it's run here by two individuals out of here. We're standing in this brightly lit foyer entrance here. Let's, if we could, wherever you'd like to go, just take us and describe the feeling, the sense of space that you get in this architecture with a Tom Harkin personal tour here, a little bit of a tour. Well, let's start right here then. Here's the ramp that goes up to the second floor. And you'll notice a whole lot of butterflies, different sizes and different colors of butterflies. So come over here, Ben. Take your finger and feel the butterfly. Okay. This feels like it's a paper cutout butterfly, but it has Braille on it. It has Braille on it. Every butterfly has Braille on it. Now, all that Braille is, is it's excerpts from the Americans with Disabilities Act. You were the chief sponsor of the yes. ADA in right. the Senate, right. which was signed into law in 1990. Yes, Can yes. it be that long ago? 
I, it's hard to believe myself. <laughs> <laughs> July 26, 1990, hard to believe. But we have an artist in residence here, Jill Wells. And she did this, and the reason she did it is because when the ADA was passed, some person with a disability was quoted as saying, I now feel as free as a butterfly. Mm. That I can fly. And so she had this idea of cutting these butterflies out and printing them with Braille. So this is all over. You'll see all over the walls and stuff around here. Mm -hmm. It's just, again, a visual kind of a, it's kind of catchy. And we have other artwork here. But then if we start here, there's like about four things right here in this area. One is, and they're all bills that I introduced and got through. This is the bill I did on menu labeling. So as you know, as you go in a restaurant now or someplace, you see the menu, it tells you how many calories and stuff. Yes, yes, well, we that do. was my bill. So this is just a little kind of a stand here that talks about menu labeling, the menu and, and education. The, and the younger folks listening may not know that that hasn't always existed. <laughs> I know, it hasn't always existed. Uh, so that's just sort of what this indicates. So we have a, a DQ. I happen to be a fan of Dairy Queen, so we, we have... <laughs> all the different calories but you see it on every menu now mm -hmm. and then you walk over here and this is the you'll see a loom like a, a weaving loom that someone would weave stuff up well this is my child labor bill and i set up the international labor affairs bureau at the department of labor to again cut down on the use of child labor in other countries and we got the here in in 1999 we got ilo UN Convention 182, and I went with then uh, President Clinton to Geneva when it was signed on doing away with the worst forms of child labor. So that's what that loom kind of represents. Uh, this is another bill I got passed. So we have a we have a TV that would look like it's from the 1980s or right 90s right. 80s right. something like that. That's Old right. fashioned what right. we would say now. That's right? exactly right. <laughs> now most people know me for the ADA, but I also got another bill that I actually drafted. We had my hearings on it and got it passed, and it's called the Television Decoder Circuitry Act of 1990. What that bill did is it mandated that any television set sold in America with a 13-inch screen or more had to have a decoding chip in it to decode closed captions. Mm. So all the stuff you see in the bottom of your TV screen and stuff was reserved just for that. So actually what happened is sometime after that, I had a, a five-year phase-in period, and actually uh, some big hotel chains decided this would be a good marketing tool. <laughs> so they threw out all their TVs and got TVs with that decoding chip. But what you'll see here is a set-top box right here. Actually, uh, uh, Senator Jennings Randolph from West Virginia and I delivered the first one of those to President Jimmy Carter in the White House uh, in 1978. And then I got one for my brother, who was deaf. And so he could now watch television and read closed captions on the television set yeah. but you don't need those boxes anymore it's because the chip is in the television set and for those who don't know your your brother uh frank who passed right. away right. many years ago yes. was a big impetus for you to engage in this sort of work he was he yes he was by spark plug he was a, <laughs> he, he was the my older brother frank was sort of the one who i watched grow up and how he was discriminated against because he was deaf in terms of so many things, education, everything else. 
And uh, I always said that if it wasn't right, and if I could ever get in a position to do something about it, I would. And thanks to luck and the voters of Iowa, I was able to do something about it. So, and this last one here, of course, is the, you'll see is curb cuts. And this is Title Three of the, or Title Two of the ADA. Uh, and these are just, again, a visual representation of what it was like before. Uh, and the fact that now you have curb cuts for, not just for people who use wheelchairs, but anybody, uh, bicyclists, uh, people with baby carriages, all kinds of things. Everybody loves curb cuts now. You know, that's, just, that's just one part of it, but it's just, just an example. In just a moment, more of my conversation recorded earlier this week with former Senator Tom Harkin. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. You're listening to an encore edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Today, a special edition recorded at the Tom and Ruth Harkin Center on Drake University's campus in Des Moines. It's a building that features unique architecture that's aimed at inclusion and accessibility. Let's get back to that conversation with former U.S. Senator Tom Harkin. At this point in the conversation, I asked Senator Harkin how disabilities are defined differently today compared to when the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, was signed back in 1990. Well, let me take a stab at that. For centuries, disability was always looked upon as a medical problem. There's something wrong with you, we've got to fix you. You're missing your hearing, your sight, your mobility, something like that. Yeah, there's something wrong with you. There's something, if, if you can't get across the street, well, there's something wrong with you. If you uh, can't see something, there's something wrong with you. If you can't hear something, something wrong with you. Well, we started thinking about that. And the idea is it's not, it's like my friend Lowell Weicker once said, that the biggest obstacle to persons with disabilities are not the physical barriers but the attitudinal barriers mm. that people have about people with disabilities. So we begin to think about disabilities, no, it's the way society is structured. The way they're viewed, treated as disabled people and the expectations we have of people with disabilities as we see them. Yes, the idea being that if you build things with universal design, then People without sight can do all kinds of things, or people that are in wheelchairs can do any kinds of things, or people who are deaf. As long as society is structured in a different way with universal kind of design, that's the idea. Uh, it, it, it's like um, wider doorways so people can get through it. That doesn't cost much, yeah. just wider doorways. Putting a ramp up, ramps don't take that much space, and you know what? Even people that sort of don't think of themselves as having disabilities will take a ramp. An older person 
if their stairs are a ramp, they'll take the ramp. Yeah. Less and, chance of falling down. And let's go back to giving our listeners the mind's eye picture of where we are. We're standing in the, do you call this the entrance, the foyer? But there is a huge ramp circling us here. This is a two-story structure here uh, designed by um, uh, Kevin Nordmeyer and, right. and his company here. But I walked up this ramp, and perhaps we can do that too. It is such a gradual slope. I, I have to tell you, Senator, before I came here, I said, a ramp in the middle of the building that is the centerpiece. I was like, oh, okay, let's see how this works, okay? Right, right. But I walked on the ramp. It is so gradual right. and pleasurable, right. you don't even have the sense that you're going up or down. At least I didn't. Is that the way it is for you? Absolutely. And, it's, and Kevin did a great job in design. And as you can, designing, as you can see standing here, it doesn't interfere at all with anything. No, it's integrated. It's integrated. We have a huge space here. We have a lot of events that take place in this room. So uh, uh, as you can see, it doesn't in any way interfere with the usage of the space whatsoever. Yeah. But it's just, again, thinking about the design. What else would go there? Probably nothing. <laughs> Probably just a wall. It's like a slightly inclined hallway that wraps around part of the building. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, the, that's, yeah. that's very interesting. And it's it, interesting that, again, the architects, the builders, the, the first thought was, well, we need to carpet it. Well, if you carpet it, then people have a hard time rolling a wheelchair up there yeah. or down. Well, then we'll just put cement. Well, if you do that, it gets wet, they get slippery, and people are going to slip. So there's something in the surface. You have to ask Kevin Nordmeyer about this. But if it gets wet, it doesn't get slippery. Mm -hmm. Again, technologies like that. Aside from the, the centerpiece, the ramp in this building, what are some of your other favorite aspects of this new center? That is, that is universal design. That's not a term that we all know here, yeah. but you're, you're sort of, you're painting the picture. What does it mean to have universal design in interior and exterior architecture? Well, uh, come over here. For example, look at this right over here, for example. So you'll notice the outlets, the electrical outlets are higher up off the floor. All right. Why is that? Because people in wheelchairs said we always have problems trying to plug in our devices or something because it's so low to the floor. Well, we just raised them up. Now a person in a wheelchair can plug anything in so there. So that's just, about, I would say, two and a half feet up? Probably, yeah, probably two and a half feet off the floor. Something like, something like that. It makes you wonder who decided how high outlets should be in the first place. You're right. I have no idea. <laughs> Those, that's much handier right there. And, sure. and I understand from reading in the, the book about this center, it's important that this outlet, the plate, is a different color than the wall. Why is that? Well, again, people who are sight impaired, maybe not blind, but sight impaired, have a hard time distinguishing between light and dark places and stuff. If it's the same, they, they may not be able to see where the outlet is. So you'll notice that's true all through the building, that the switches and things like that are a different color than the wall, so that someone who is sight impaired has the contrast. And you'll notice also that a lot of the corners, uh, if you'll look at corners, there'll be maybe white wall here and a blue wall here. Mm -hmm. So you'll see, the, you'll see it. Right. So people have, who are visually impaired know that that's a corner right there. And just there's all kinds of interesting little things. Like, just like this boardroom we're in right now was designed, again, so that people who meet have eye contact. No, any place you sit here, you can have eye contact with anybody else. 
not like a big long table where somebody's sitting and you, you don't have eye contact. That's the way this was designed. And all of these places, uh, I think Danny here can show those, those tables go up and down somehow. There it is. The table is, so this is a conference room or the yes. main conference room here. Yes. And we'll meet Daniel Van Sant a little bit later. But <laughs> this table almost magically can raise to a height of, I'd say, three feet, maybe down to two feet. What do you think, Senator? Something like that. And this is to accommodate what? Well, some people have a hard time sitting and they need to stand, okay? And then some people are in a uh, maybe a, uh, a different kind of a, an assistive device, maybe uh, someone who is, I'd just say a person with spina bifida perhaps, and, and they're in a different height of a wheelchair, so they can get the table to match wherever, whatever height they need to do their work. Yeah. Uh, so the furniture and the design work hand in hand together. Yeah, so this, yeah. this had to go together. And I notice uh, these conference room tables are all on wheels. Yes, of course. These can all be moved around, fashioned in any way you want. And of course, here, this opens out into that foyer we were just in, and this can make it just one great big kind of reception room. Well, for example, for the first couple of years here, you mentioned that the, this opened in 20. We didn't dedicate it till last year, 2022. In the interim, this foyer out here that we were just in was our vaccination place. People were getting their COVID shot in this space right here. It's been decades since the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act, was signed. You were the uh, chief sponsor of that in uh, that law. It's made such an important difference in so many lives here. But what barriers are left more than three decades after signing the ADA into law for people with disabilities? What's left to do? Because it's made such a huge difference already. Uh, The biggest one and the one that we're probably focused on more than anything else is employment. Opening the doors of employment to people with disabilities. That's just been one of the toughest things. Uh, And it's Title I. I made sure when we drafted the ADA, there's five titles, and it's Title I, employment, because I figured employment is the key. A good job, a decent job, not only for income, but just for being part of our economic and social life. And, and, And to go back to something you said earlier, People with disabilities are not hindered so much by their difference, but in how we think of their disability. Is that true of employment as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just that people have it, so many businesses and employers had it in their mind that if you're disabled, you simply can't do something. You can't do certain things. But we have found that with, as the 80s, a says, as you know, there's a phrase in there called reasonable accommodations for businesses, have to provide reasonable accommodations. And over the years, that's been developed as to what that means. A reasonable accommodation for a huge company might be different than a reasonable accommodation for a, a, a company that employs 10 people, for mm-hmm. example, something mm-hmm. like that. But the idea being that with reasonable accommodations, a person with a disability who is qualified for a job, in many times... I would say most times, they do the job better than someone without a disability. Why would that be? Because a person with a disability, and that was my experience with my brother. Frank. Frank. He got all kinds of awards for productivity and everything. Why? Because being a deaf person, when there was noises and bells and things going off on the plant floor, it didn't bother him a bit. He could focus. He could stay focused on his job. Mm. 
So we got all kinds of awards for productivity. <laughs> In fact, the owner of the company told me years later that after he hired Frank, he was the first deaf person. He said, I went out and hired more deaf people. He said, it was better for my bottom line. <laughs> so, so, again, with reasonable accommodations, we've seen so many times. A person with disability stays focused. They show up for work on time. They uh, pay attention closely. And like I said, in many times, they just outperform their non-disabled peers. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what we're trying to break down is this, this whole kind of mindset about persons with disabilities. And, and I, I, I'll, say, I'll say one other thing, Ben, and, that, and that's this. A lot of times people, maybe they think they're going to be uncomfortable working alongside someone with a disability. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've run into that many times. They, they just they feel uncomfortable. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to act. I always say act normal. <laughs> you know, just act normal and treat people as you would treat anyone else. And we found so many times that people that are seemingly nervous or don't want to work with someone who's disabled, once they get over their initial apprehension, yeah. their initial fear, that built-in attitude that I mentioned earlier, once they get over that, Wow, a lot of times they become best friends, best coworkers, and this just happens so many times. So the person with a disability under this this new view, back to the butterfly, is freed like right. a butterfly. But also the person without the disability. That's exactly right. See, that's that's like that's a key point too. People without disabilities now, they become more free. <laughs> they really do. They free themselves of these old uh, mindsets and prejudices that they had against people with disabilities. Uh, that somehow, you, you mentioned earlier the old attitude. See, for time immemorial, we always thought if you had a disability, we had to take care of you. And you were often separated from the rest of the— Oh, yes. In, in oh, work I, or in school or wherever. Absolutely. Schools, you were separated. Work, you were separated. There was a place for people with disabilities to work, but not integrated. See? Yes. Not integrated. Yes. So you were separated out. You were looked upon as charity. Anything you do for a person with disability is charity. I can't tell you how many times that was said to me about the ADA. Oh, that's just a— charity thing. You're just doing that for people with disabilities. It's mm. just charity, right? I said, no, it's not. It's so our society will function better. That means we can tap into the skills and the, 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 the workforce and out, that's out there right. that we're just dismissing, that we've been dismissing for years. Mm-hmm. And what I have noticed uh, from uh, the few people I have known who have visited the United States from uh, other countries, and you are aware of many more people who visited this country, it is a striking difference mm. to many other countries the degree to which we have included people with disabilities in all aspects of our society, thanks to the ADA. You must hear reactions like that all the time from people abroad wanting to emulate what has been put forth and carried out in this act. Well, that's true. And, and Ben, after we passed the ADA in 1990, about 10 years later, uh, I was visited by some delegations from the United Nations. I'm sorry, I just blanked out on the guy's name. He was Irishman. And there was a task force set up in the UN to develop a, a United Nations Declaration Convention on the rights of persons with disabilities, and so they modeled it after the ADA. Mm. 
And so, so there the U.S. was a pioneer. Pioneer. So the U.N. promulgated this in 2008, yeah. something like that. So there's, now there's a global United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And so the ideas that, and you said this is a, this building we're standing in right now, the right. new Tom and Ruth Harkin Center here in Des Moines, part of the Drake University campus, is at the forefront of what we're calling universal design. And the hope here is not only that it functions here, if I'm understanding you, but that it will be emulated, spread, these ideas. Is, is, am I going in the right direction? You are, because... Kevin Nordmeyer will tell you they, they've developed a book, uh, which I can show you here. I'll describe for your listeners. It's a book that we're giving to architects and builders around the country. If you want to build a building with universal design, here's how you do it. And they developed it here because of this was built from the ground up that way. So it's not a detailed book about how to do this and this. It's what to keep in mind, how to think about spaces how to think about sight lines, how to think about ramps, how to think about lighting, how to think about contrasting colors, all the things you think about when you're designing a building to be accessible. So uh, as we conclude our little conversation here, what thoughts do you want to leave us with, Senator Harkin? It's not that difficult to build buildings or houses that are accessible. That's another thing. Well, we got it in the ADA that buildings had to be accessible. I was unsuccessful. We couldn't get houses in. But we need to build houses and condominiums that are accessible. It's not that difficult. It's just changing your mind. Ask Kevin Nordmeyer. Once you get it down, it doesn't, and it doesn't cost that much. What, what, what about those who will say it costs too much? It adds too much to any given project. What, how do you come back? It really doesn't. I mean, once you design it, you can ask Mr. Nordmeyer about that, but the cost is, is minimal. It's just minimal. It's just, it's in the design and how you design it differently. There may be a few things, but the extra cost, well, that maybe, maybe that means that someone can use your building with a disability and can enhance your profitability or, or whatever it might be in your building because you put that there. Now you can have a bigger pool of people who might utilize your space in your building than you could before. So you have to think about it that way too. Senator Harkin, I want to thank you very much for this conversation for now. Perhaps we'll be able to speak later. I'm not sure about your schedule or where we're going from here. But for now, thank you for the ideas you've given us. Absolutely, Ben, and thanks for being here. And I hope we've tried to visualize for radio, for Iowa Public Radio, which I love, by the way, as you know, a little bit about what this building is about and what we're doing here. My conversation recorded earlier this week with former Senator Tom Harkin. When we come back after a short break, another conversation I had during my visit to the Tom and Ruth Harkin Center in Des Moines earlier this week, we'll hear some specifics about the center's unique universal design from Kevin Nordmeyer, one of the principals of BNIM Architects. I'm Ben Kiefer, back in just a moment. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, 
fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. You're listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Out of the studio today, we're in Des Moines at the Tom and Ruth Harkin Center. It's the headquarters of the Harkin Institute, which has been around for about 10 years. They have a new center here, uh, which features something we're being termed universal design. We just heard from Senator Harkin about how the design here ties into some of the policy aims of the Institute. And now I'm joined by Kevin Nordmeyer, a principal of BNIM Architects. And uh, Kevin, I'll just hand it over to you to, to further introduce yourself so we can talk about this new structure. Sure. Thanks, Ben. I began this process of design. Uh, Drake University, where we are today, um, had hired my firm uh, to design this new facility for the Tom and Ruth Harkin Center. And um, I'd been on your program in the past, you know, 20 years for being known as the sustainable design guy and I and things like that. And um, my firm, who was one of the founders of the sustainable movement in America, is starting to think about sustainability differently, to be not only about energy and water and materials and things like that, but also to think about the human element. And so we actually like to call it human-purposed integrated design. It's become more important for me personally because as we started the design of this building, I was diagnosed with MS in 2011, have probably had MS for 10 years before that, didn't really, wasn't diagnosed. And so when we started this design, it was in Washington, D.C., and uh, at the very first meeting of the Disability Council that Senator Harkin uh, referred to that, that uh, advises one of the policy advising groups for, for the Harkin uh, Institute. And so I was still using a cane at the time. It was in 2018, November of 18. And so uh, now I'm sitting in a wheelchair. And so my progression of this disease of becoming more disabled has helped inform me of how to be more empathetic uh, for those with disabilities like I have. But what this process has helped show uh, me and my team at my firm in particular is how to be empathetic for all different sorts of abilities that uh, we don't engage with every day. So uh, where Senator Harkin talked about the ADA 30 years ago, that's when I entered the profession. So I graduated from Iowa State in 1990 I remember the ADA coming out. All of us were like, well, what does this mean for us? Mm-hmm. And so we were designing buildings for the last 30 years that comply with the ADA, but not really thinking about the why. Unlike, I assume, a lot of other architectural projects, this process was much different for you as an architect of, of many years in that you first needed to gather ideas. Talk about how that process was different for this building than a typical architectural challenge. Right, so when architects design buildings, you, you engage with a client and start asking questions about what kind of space do you need and how many, how many spaces, what sizes of spaces and things like that. And you might be talking with a community or a city about uh, how the building fits within the neighborhood or, the, or community needs. In this case, the disability advisory group to the Harkin Institute told us that barrier that still exists is that they are not engaged. And so 
Um, what we've chosen to do on this project, we, we engaged them and, and tried to find out everything we possibly could about their needs in terms of making a building that went beyond the ADA. And as we began to design this building and start thinking about, uh, we, we had to immediately start into research. And so we utilized that committee to help us ask questions about removing as many barriers as we could, making the building as gracious as we could. And so you'll see that as we were doing it, Jason Cruz in my office, who was a key architect and, and designer and collaborator with me on this project, at one moment he started saying, you know what, we're, we're researching and finding out all of these great ideas about how to make a building more accessible beyond the ADA. We should be writing this down. Mm. And so he started thinking about organizing uh, these ideas into guiding principles. And so rather than just like the ADA where it would prescribe 18 inches next to a door for clearance into a doorway and things like that. I mean, very prescriptive. We chose to make that book be about uh, the spirit of place, sort of the spirit of what a building should be to be gracious and accommodating to anybody. And most strategies that we learned about not only help those with certain disabilities, but they help everybody. Sliding doors help people that have their arms full or have a kid in their arms or, you know, whatever the issue is. And there's just more and more things like that about the design that are accessible to all. In creating this building, what principles guided you, Kevin? Yeah, so those that Jason, my fellow architect in our office, encapsulated these guiding principles in our book are creating generous space, so space that making sure that it's wide enough and gracious uh, for all. Creating a clear path, so a path that's very clear and understandable and legible. Equitable experiences, so creating a building and, and site environment that, that allows for equitable experiences and how I access a room or access a table in a room or negotiate space throughout the building. And the last one is individual empowerment. So not have to ask for uh, special accommodations that I can just come to the building, use the building no matter what my needs are. And related to all of that is, are, are a couple of things. One is the bathrooms. The state of Iowa uses the, the International Building Code. The International Building Code says you calculate how many people are in the building, you divide that number by two for a men's room and a women's room, and then there's a chart that shows you how many toilets and urinals and lavatories and so forth that are required. And so what the committee wanted to do here and what we, what we wanted to, to strive to do is to not label people. And, and so many, many times there'll be a, a family re restroom or a gender neutral restroom and things like that. We didn't, we didn't even want to use those terms. Mm. And so uh, we went to the city and the city said, well, you have, the code says you have to have men's and women's rooms. And we said, well, we don't want to do that. And they said, well, if you prove to us that you can provide the same number of toilets and fixtures that the code requires, we don't care how you assemble those. Just make sure you get the right number. So we did show them. We had to do it formally. We had to sort of petition them. And so we showed them that we were able to accommodate the correct number of toilets. And so now they allowed it. And so that's precedence now that for other projects in Des Moines, they don't need to ask for permission. And so we chose to just label the function of the room. And we chose to label throughout the building. We have signage that uses not only Braille, but it uses a lot of pictures along with, with some words. But we just label it as restroom. And we show either a symbol of a toilet or a urinal or a sharps container, or a, an adult-sized changing table that we've accommodated. 
And so people can, depending on their neurocognitive abilities, can understand maybe pictures, but maybe not words. And so they can understand uh, Mm. what those rooms are for. And again, we didn't label them men's, women's, gender neutral, family, anything like that. They're just bathrooms. (laughs) We're about to go up the centerpiece of this building, which is a, a gradually sloping ramp that wraps around a good portion of the space here. Perhaps you can describe it better than I can. Sure. Well, and I mentioned being in Washington, D.C., meeting with that committee. The first thing we asked them was what barriers still exist? And it was a question that that you've asked us, Senator Harkin. And that committee said, what barriers still exist? No one ever asked that question. There's still (laughs) people not in, there's still design teams and communities not engaging the disabled community in the design of buildings. And so we uh, started asking them questions about how should we design this building to be completely, you know, accessible to all? And the first thing they said is, we knew we didn't have much on the building yet. We just knew roughly how big it was going to be. We knew the site. We knew it would be two stories. And their first challenge was, as they said, we challenge you, if it has to be two stories, make it so that people don't have to use an elevator and they don't have to use the stairs. So that committee really opened our thinking to thinking of this ramp. We probably wouldn't have thought of the ramp. So let's go up here and perhaps Kevin you could uh, direct us to some of the, as we proceed up to the second floor, sort of point out or talk about some of the other aspects of this building that wouldn't be found in, in other architecture right now. One thing I'll point out here is, is that down this hallway that's adjacent to this ramp, you'll see here walnut, there are sort of walnut uh, bands at, at certain corners those highlight for someone with low vision where key moments are so that is highlighting where the bathrooms are and also you'll notice that those walls are we painted a green color so that that contrasting color for someone with low vision they can understand in walking down this hallway where uh, places are so like where the water fountain where the bathrooms Mm -hmm. where the elevator uh, where special moments are down the hallway okay so this is for for people with vision difficulties or or different types of vision so that it's it's plain and and this is all about negotiating space you are on wheels now you didn't used to be on wheels so to recognize that people with disabilities negotiate space in different ways and you had to think about that as an architect here Correct. And what we learned from that committee, which, as Senator Harkin mentioned, is representing the blind community, the deaf community, the mobility community, is that the deaf community, for them to have a conversation while they're walking and doing sign language, you need a wider hallway. Mm. So that not only helps them, but it also helps two people in wheelchairs to do the same, or just anybody if you're walking and having a, having a yeah. conversation, a little bit wider hallway Uh, helps. And so this ramp is six feet wide. All the hallways, we chose not to make any narrower than six feet. Uh, So many times architects, you know, you're fighting budgets and you need to make the building smaller or whatever. And so they're always sort of trying to skinny up, you know, hallways and things. And what we chose not to do was sacrifice that sort of graciousness in terms of hallway widths. We're walking up this 
ramp that goes from the first floor of the Tom and Ruth Harkin Center here on Drake University campus in Des Moines, gradually through different stations uh, that represent policies that uh, uh, Senator Harkin stood for and fought for when he was in the U.S. Congress, 30 years in the Senate, 10 years in the House of Representatives. As we turn the corner here, Kevin, really I, I noticed walking up here too because this ribbon-like ramp uh, sort of encircles a large part of the open space in this in this building. You really are treated to a lot of uh, wonderful vistas of the Drake University campus here. Right, and that was the idea. As soon as we realized we needed to do a ramp, what we wanted to do was have it not only be a physical connection between two floors, but have it be a visual symbol uh, as well. And so this ramp, you know, to our left, we're looking out at University Avenue, we're looking at the Drake University campus, and it's all glass. So people looking in, you know, would be able to see us, you know, ascending the ramp, they'd be able to see the ramp, start asking questions in their mind about, hmm, I wonder why there's a ramp, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. But it also, you're right, it, it provides a great connection for people indoors and outdoors as they ascend upstairs. Kevin Nordmeyer, thank you very much, and congratulations on this fabulous new center, your creation here. Yeah, thank you, Ben, and uh, it's always fabulous to be on public radio. Kevin Nordmeyer of BNIM Architects. And finally, as part of my visit to the Tom and Ruth Harkin Center in Des Moines earlier this week, I had a short conversation with Daniel Van Sant. He's Director of Disability Policy at the Harkin Institute, which has its headquarters at the center. Daniel, you are a disability rights attorney. Tell us about your role here at the Harkin Institute. Sure. So as I mentioned, I'm the director of our disability policy work. So everything that we work on in the field of disability sort of falls under my purview. I am an attorney by trade. Of course, I still have my license, still keep it up to date. I get to work with some of our law clerks here, uh, but I'm no longer providing direct services to people. So I found that that background in the law really helps with our policy work here because in my past of working with disabled people whose rights have been violated, you actually get to see the mechanics of what pieces of the law are and are not working. So I'm able to draw on that in the policy work to inform some of those outcomes, try to solve some of the problems that I'm seeing on the ground working with people. And so your work, your experience is both professional and personal that informs you in, in disability rights. Yes. So in addition to being a disability rights attorney, I have a disability myself. I was born with a physical disability. And so just by the nature of being born with one, you sort of become a self-advocate by default. And then like many people, I suppose, I saw a direct path between being a self-advocate to being a professional advocate or an advocate for others, um, which led me to the, the law and policy yeah. track. You, by appearances, you're a, a young man, and you must, uh, I don't know if you have much of a recollection of the, the signing of the ADA. I do not have personal recollection of it because I am part of what's known as the ADA generation. So I am just a few months older than the ADA itself, really? meaning, mm -hmm. as I mentioned, I was, I was born with a disability, but so very lucky then to have only lived in a United States that had the ADA, that had these legal protections. And uh, at least in disability world, we talk about our generation as being, it's different, right? We didn't have to do the same protests, mobilization, all of that. We reap the benefits that the generation before us made, which 
doesn't mean the work is done, but definitely puts us in a different perspective, I think. Since the ADA was uh, signed into law in 1990, uh, Senator Harkin uh, was the lead sponsor in the Senate, the chief sponsor in the Senate of that law that's been so important to, to Americans. And now we're seeing it emulated around the world in other countries comment on the barriers that still exist. And this uh, center is, uh, is aimed at not just complying with the ADA, but going beyond. That's what I hear here. So that means there are still barriers. So in your words, as a disabled person, what are the barriers, the chief barriers that you in your work as, a, as an attorney in this area uh, are fighting for? So again, this might not be a very uplifting answer, but I think on a basic level, there are still those attitudinal barriers, right? We have the technology, we have the science to know how to make more accessible spaces, accessible programs, but there's still a stigma. There's still an attitudinal block for people. In terms of what is left to be done, sadly, there are still a lot of laws on the books that allow disabled people to be treated differently than people without disabilities. For instance? So there's actually a sub-minimum wage for people with disabilities. So we think of there being a minimum wage, but there's actually a carve-out that you can apply for what's called a 14C certificate and pay disabled people below the minimum wage, sometimes 20 cents an hour, 40 cents an hour. So we have a sub-minimum wage. There's still laws that allow people with disabilities to be sterilized without their consent. Things like that that still exist and we need to try to get rid of to actually have full inclusion in our society. Daniel Van Sant, a director of disability policy with the Harkin Institute, thank you very much. Thank you. And that does it for this special edition of River to River, recorded earlier this week, Monday, August 21st, during a visit to the Tom and Ruth Harkin Center in Des Moines. Today's program was produced, recorded, and edited by Samantha McIntosh. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.